How many of you enjoy, uh, you know, the game show Jeopardy? Anybody out here enjoy watching the game? Okay, there's a number of good hands out there. Jeopardy. Uh, so I, I got a couple of Jeopardy-style questions for us as we begin this morning. This fall under the category of famous presidential broken promises. Okay, you've chosen that category, um, and uh, this is for uh, $500. I don't know, just, just kidding. Um, he famously, okay, I'm going to phrase this in the way Jeopardy does. He famously promised, read my lips, no new taxes. And the answer is, who was George H.W. Bush, Right. <laughs> He made that promise back in 1988, only to sign a bill raising taxes during his first term. Okay, here's another one. He promised, we are not about to send American boys nine or 10,000 miles away from home to do what they ought to be doing for themselves. Answer, who was Lyndon B. Johnson? Who was Lyndon B. Johnson? He promised this back in 1964, only to end up sending troops to Vietnam later in August of that same year. (laughs) Broken promises. I mean, we find empty, broken promises all over the place, right? Not only from presidents, mind you, okay? Uh, But you can find them at, at your workplace, You'll find broken, empty promises in in those TV advertisements you you see all the time. You can find broken, empty promises even in your own homes, can't you? Husbands, who hasn't said this? Yes, honey, you know, I'll take the trash out right after dinner. (laughs) Broken promises, right? Uh, or what parent hasn't heard their child say this? Um, yeah, mom, dad, listen, I, 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 I'll, I'll get to my homework right after I finish watching this television show. <laughs> um, and then, of course, what happens? They, they never do get to their homework, right? Promises are broken all the time. But there are times, uh, there are times where a promise is kept. A couple of years ago, as uh, uh, my wife was cleaning out our son's closet in, in the fall. She came across uh, his North Face winter coat. Um, our son Jacob had not taken it to college because the zipper on, on the uh, coat was, was broken. But then my wife Becky remembered North Face promise, you know, the lifetime guarantee behind defects in all materials and workmanship. So... She decided, hey, we're going to test that promise. Uh, uh, We're going to send the coat back um, to them and see if they'll fix that zipper, if they will actually fulfill their promise, never really expecting a response. So she wrapped it up and uh, packaged it up and sent it back to to North Face. But to our surprise and to our our joy, uh, six weeks later, Jacob's winter coat was returned to us, completely fixed. The zipper was completely fixed. The coat was like brand new, and it didn't cost us a penny. (laughs) Unbelievable. Um, I mean, we were amazed, and we were delighted, and we were shocked, really, right? I mean, that's what happens these days when someone keeps their promise. Um, God is kind of like North Face. 
He is faithful to his promises. <laughs> Throughout Scripture, God makes all sorts of outlandish promises that, you know, when we read them, we, we, we can't bring ourselves really to, to, to believe sometimes. In the book, What the Bible Says About Praise and Promise, the author in that book lists 1,000 promises that God gives us in Scripture. Thousands more are listed in Samuel Clark's 200-year-old classic, Precious Bible Promises. And then Everett R. Storms, uh, um, a school teacher in Canada, decided he wanted to make a detailed study of God's promises in Scripture, and he came up with a grand total of 8,810 promises that God makes in Scripture to us. Now, I don't care. What, whatever the number is, here's what you can count on. You can always count on God keeping his promises. King Solomon said during his temple dedication prayer, Concerning the validity of the promises that God said, praise be to the Lord, not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. God keeps his promises. And at the very beginning of the Bible story, um, I think God makes one of his greatest promises, a promise he kept on Christmas morning. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at this Christmas promise that God gives us here at the very beginning of Scripture. Now, you know Genesis chapter 3, Genesis, the first part, the first two chapters of Genesis, um, you know, you find everything perfect. I mean, Adam and Eve were uh, living in paradise, and they were enjoying the ideal marriage, and they were never hungry, and they loved their work, <laughs> and they were enjoying walking around in the garden with God. Everything was good, good, I mean, very, very good. But then we come to Genesis chapter 3, don't we? And there's this giant screech and thud. <laughs> In college, I uh, played on, on the tennis team. Um, for one of our tennis matches, we had to travel uh, to play another college, Carthage College, which is just uh, over the Illinois border into Wisconsin, uh, just off of Lake Michigan. Um, and while we were there playing in the middle of the match, there suddenly there was this loud screech and thud. <laughs> we stopped playing to see what was going on, what was, what was happening. And we, evidently um, on a two-lane road that ran right next to the, the tennis courts, um, a motorcyclist tried to get around a car, realizing that they couldn't make it before they ran into an oncoming car, went off onto the uh, shoulder, and it was a soft shoulder, and he lost control, and he, and he uh, crashed into a little uh, inlet river that fed into Lake Michigan. We all ran out to help, got there as fast as we could. In fact, one of my teammates jumped into the river to see if he could uh, recover and help the guy get out, but um, he never found the body. Of course, number, just a few minutes later, there were divers that came out, and we were there, and we watched, and they 
uh, swam around, couldn't find it. About a half an hour later, they ended up finding this gentleman who had crashed. He was drowned, had been buried under the mud. Needless to say, we never finished our tennis match. Um, suddenly, that, that trip back to our campus that afternoon um, was quite somber. Um, nobody was saying a thing. Everything was really quiet. Our day had suddenly changed with that screech and thud. In Genesis chapter 3, we find something similar happening. There's an even greater screech and, and thud. On that day, everything changes, right? As sin enters paradise. And to this day, I think that's the most tragic event in human history. Adam and Eve, they were going around in, along in life, not a care in the world. Then suddenly, there comes this serpent. And he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I want you to know, here's the very first question mark in all of Scripture, right there. And it's a question designed by Satan to cast doubt on what God says. And that might give us a little bit of a hint, uh, a clue as to when sin creeps into our lives. Uh, it creeps in when we begin to doubt God, God's word. And look what happens. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you hear it? Screech <laughs> and thud. Adam and Eve, they fall from perfection, and they cannot get up. They have sinned, and life, as they have known it, will never be the same again. You, you might think, well, that was Av and Eve. That wasn't me. Just because they gave in to Satan doesn't mean that I will. <laughs> but think about it this way. If they could not defeat Satan in a perfect world, I mean, what chance do you and I have in a world that we live in right now? We don't have a chance apart from God. We face a foe that we cannot beat. See, the moment that sin entered our world, God declared war against Satan. And Satan, on the other hand, declared war against both God and us. Sin is costly. Sin ruins our innocence. You read on, Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened on that day. Their eyes were opened to evil. Before that time, they had never known evil, right? But behind that bait was a terrible hook. See, once you have this knowledge of evil, you, cannot, you can't get rid of it. Sin steals our ability to look at things the same way. It distorts our perceptions. It colors our judgments. Even good things suddenly seem to be suspect. Shame, guilt, distrust, they dog our days. Sin also ruins our intimacy with God. In fact, look with me at verse 8. Look what he says here. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves.
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. <laughs> I mean, they hear God coming, and what do they do? They run, try to hide, back into the shrubbery, afraid of God. I mean, that's a picture of us apart from Jesus Christ, isn't it? I mean, we ought to be running to God. As Adam and Eve should have been running to him. But instead, too often times, we try hiding from God, just like Adam and Eve were trying to hide from God. Sin also ruins our relationships with others, with each other. Adam and Eve had enjoyed the perfect marriage. They had enjoyed the perfect intimacy, perfect friendship. But now suddenly Adam is blaming her, and, and, and she is doing her part by blaming the serpent. <laughs> I mean, what seems so natural to us, right? Um, blaming someone else gets its start right here in Genesis chapter 3. Sin also ruins our enjoyment of all God's gifts. In fact, the last verse of chapter 3 what you'll find is um, God driving this couple out of the garden. They're now outside of the place of God's blessing. They no longer enjoy fellowship with God, and their lives have become this um, terrible struggle in a hostile place. Why did God drive them out? He drove them out because they were no longer on his side. They had taken sides against God, and so now they were, because of sin, at war with God. Satan was not only, is not the only one at war with God. No, humanity was now at war with God. One of the top three most terrible days in the history of our nation was December 7th, 1941, the day that Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. President Franklin Roosevelt declared a war a war that would eventually cost 50 million lives with these famous words. This is the day which will live in infamy. At the beginning of time, Satan dropped his bomb of sin on that Garden of Eden, and God basically said, this is the day that will live in infamy. On that day, God declared war against Satan, or sin and against Satan and against anyone who would come uh, continue to rebel against him. Bottom line, <laughs> sin is costly. You and I are in deep trouble because we have fallen short of God's holiness and are therefore disqualified from the very relationship for which we were created. And we cannot fix this problem. We, we cannot save ourselves. Rather, we need to be saved from ourselves. We need a rescuer. We are broken and rebellious at the deepest levels. And if we die in this state, we're cut off from God forever. You think about that and you say, wow, what a depressing truth. <laughs> but then, here, in Genesis 3, we come to this incredible, amazing promise of God. Here in the very beginning of the Bible story, I got to show this to you. We not only discover our problem, but we discover that God has a promised solution for us. God gives us a promise, a promise to send someone to rescue us, someone to defeat evil and build a bridge back to God. God gives the promise of Christmas here. 
But strangely enough, I want you to see this. This promise of Christmas, it starts with a curse. Look with me at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It's interesting to me that after God has uh, been asking both Adam and Eve uh, what they have done, right, previously, the verses previous to this. God turns to the serpent, but he doesn't question the serpent, does he? Instead, he immediately curses the serpent. And the fact that God curses the serpent tells us that this curse is certain. Notice that this curse upon the, the, the serpent is stated in physical terms. The snake will crawl on its belly and it will eat dust all of its life. You say, well, wait, but pastor, don't snakes already crawl on their bellies? Does this mean that this one had legs? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. The reference, I think, here to being on his belly and eating dust, I think it's symbolic signifying defeat, signifying humiliation. The snake had exalted itself above humanity. Therefore, now it would go upon its belly and forever eat dust. Forever it will be a signal of, of defeat and humiliation. Now, that's the first half of this curse. But notice the second half of the curse. This time, the second half, God talks directly to Satan. Look with me at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you know what enmity means? It means war. It means, it means conflict. Um, the name Satan means adversary and opponent. And that is what Satan is. That's what Satan does. Satan opposes the human race usually by promoting discord and conflict. That hatred was originally seen in the temptation of Adam and Eve, and it surfaces again and again and again and again um, throughout the pages of Scripture as well as through the course of history. Constant warfare. On that day in the, in the garden, God declared war against sin against Satan, against anyone who would continue to rebel against him. From that moment until now, there has been and there always will be two wars that are going on, right? There's a war from without, and there's also a war from within. There's a war going on right now between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. <laughs> That's a war without. But there's also a war that goes on within, right? I mean, we do things we know we shouldn't do, and we, we, we don't do things that we know we should do. <laughs> Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. And we mess up, and we ask for forgiveness, and then we just immediately turn around, and we go and mess up again. <laughs> we do the same sinful thing another time. See, no matter how hard... You and I try. We can't get things right. We, we can't be perfect. 
But don't feel bad. I mean, everybody fights this war. I do. You do. The Pope does. We all fight the war against sin, our own, on your own. Listen, it, it's a war that none of us can win. But understand something. I, I want you to understand, I'm not being pessimistic here. I, I'm just being realistic. I mean, in the history of the world, no mere human has ever won this war. No mere human ever will. That's why God's Christmas promise in verse 15 is so significant, so important. It tells us the final outcome. Listen to that verse again, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want you to notice three things here. I want to point out three things I want you to see in, in this one verse. First, the word the ESV translates um, offspring is the Hebrew word for seed. The word seed is used over 300 times in the Bible. And this is the only time it's used to describe the seed of a woman. Every other time it describes the seed of a man. Now, technically, medically speaking, a woman does not have a seed. The woman has the egg. The man has the seed. So why would God speak of a seed of a woman? How can, have a, how can a woman have a seed? <laughs> there can only be one explanation. That's found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This was a prophecy about something only God could do. The rescuer is going to be a human being. He's going to have an earthly mother. But it said he, he's a seed of a woman. He's not going to have an earthly father, but we know every child has to have a father. <laughs> Therefore, the only father for this child is going to be the heavenly father. This seed could not be a son of man like Adam. He would have failed if that were the case, just like Adam. He had to be a human in order to fight and win the battle that Adam lost. But he only, only a sinless man could undo what a sinful man had done. And in order to be sinless, a sinless man, he also had to be divine. Only God is sinless. Therefore, this seed, see, this seed was both the son of man and the son of God. Second, I want you to notice the two singular masculine pronouns that come in the last half of that verse. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The rescuer will be a particular individual. Not uh, the human race in general. All of a sudden, it's narrowed down to a specific individual. He will be one of Eve's descendants, a particular individual who will strike the serpent's head, even though the serpent will bruise his, that is, that individual's heel. 
Now, third, I want you to notice the two bruisings that God promises here. <laughs> he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The Savior's heel will be bruised. The rescuer will not go unbloodied. He will not fight this battle without being wounded. He will be bruised. Isaiah says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. But there's a second bruising that takes place. You notice that? A bruising of the serpent's head. Now listen, you don't have to be a doctor to figure out that the bruising of your brain is worse than the bruising of your foot. I mean, a bruise to the foot, I mean, that can cripple you. But listen, a bruise to the head, that can kill you. <laughs> That's God's promise. It's what the earliest church um, scholars uh, called the Proto-Evangelium. The first gospel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first mention of the good news in all of Scripture. <laughs> it's a word from God that says, Yeah, Satan's sin is in. You have brought it into this world as part of your plan. But listen, there's another plan at work, Satan, and it's going to prevail. There's a rescuer coming, and you're going to strike him on his heel. But listen, I've got news for you, Satan. I got some news for you. He's going to crush your head, and the ball game's going to be over. <laughs> God's promise was fulfilled when Jesus arrived on that Christmas morning, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Rescuer, <laughs> who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, the child of promise, our Rescuer, the seed of a woman, the branch of David, was born and the eternal word became flesh. When you read the Gospels, you can see how Satan's hatred was still strong. I mean, after Jesus' birth, Satan moved Herod to kill all the babies from two years old and under, attempting to eliminate any threat. Of course, God arranged an escape for Jesus and his young parents, right, down to Egypt. Thirty years later, as Jesus began his public ministry, Satan immediately confronts him out in that desert, and three times he dangles that, those, those temptations in front of his eyes, only to be defeated each time by the word of God. It was Satan who later stirred up the people of Nazareth to take Christ to the very edge of that cliff in order to throw him over. But passing through their midst, Scripture says, he went away. 
Finally, when all the uh, other uh, attempts had failed and when the time was right, Satan appears to succeed. And it happened at the cross. It included the hatred of religious leaders and the mocking of the, of the crowds and the beatings and the, eventually the nails that were being driven through Jesus' hands and, and through his feet. And eventually the nails, uh, eventually the great agony, with great agony, Christ died on that cross. And yet, <laughs> all of that was only a bruising on the heel. It was not a defeat. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the tomb triumphant, victorious. Christ triumphed over death and sin, and he crushed Satan's head. And although the victory has been won for us by Jesus, there is nevertheless still, and we anticipate that in this Advent season, still another to be won by those of us who are in Christ. It's a victory certain of being achieved because God's promised it. But it's still in the process of being achieved. We're not there yet. Paul, referring to this victory, wrote to the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We get to participate in that victory, in that crushing of Satan's head. On Christmas morning, friends, we are celebrating the anniversary of the arrival of the rescuer, our rescuer, our one and only promised Savior. That's what we're celebrating. And we're anticipating a further victory. Some men were talking about the body of Christ, about which part of the body of Christ that they would like to be part of. I mean, since, you know, the Bible says Christians make up the members of his body. So they're sitting around a table and they're having some coffee and they're just joking with each other. And they decide, hey, what part of the Christ body would you want to be part of? One man says, well, I'd like to be his heart so I could love like he loves Another one said, well, I like to be his eyes so I can, I can see and understand the, the way that he sees and understands. A third uh, gentleman said, I, I like to be, you know, his brain, you know, um, so I could know everything that he knows. Another man, a fourth guy, who had come from a particularly hard and sinful life, who had been beaten and battered by the devil, for most of his life until he gave his life to Christ, smiled and said, you know, you know, I, I'd like to be one of his feet so I could crush the devil's head. <laughs> Friends, that day is coming for all of us. That day is coming for those of us who are in Christ. That day is coming, guaranteed, because the arrival on Christmas morning of our rescuer. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your promises that we can count on. Not something we have to question or not something we can we doubt. But God, a promise that we can say, I, we're staking our life on these promises. 
The promise we saw fulfilled on Christmas morning in the sending of our rescuer, Jesus Christ. The promise that one day we will see fulfilled again the final crushing of Satan's head. Lord, thank you that we worship a God who keeps his promise. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.